Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are talking about the idea of a European Confederation, an idea that today's guest is promoting to help solve the EU's problem of how it reaches out to neighbouring countries with a European vocation that are not yet able to join the European Union. I'm really happy to welcome Enrico Letta, who is the former Prime Minister of Italy. He's now leader of the Partito Democratico in Italy. Uh, but as well as being a an active statesman, he has a background as an intellectual and is even involved in the think tank world as president of the Jacques Delors Institute. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So why don't we start with the reason that, that you've put forward this idea, the, the problem with enlargement, why you think a, a European confederation is needed. As soon as, as Russia invaded Ukraine, people started talking, well, reinvaded Ukraine, people started talking about the idea of offering Ukraine EU membership. And now Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova have handed in their official applications to become members of the European Union. We know that it's a, it's a very complex process. Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has promised to, to make the, the Ukrainian file travel faster through the process than, than normally. But nevertheless, it, it could be quite a, a, a long and complicated process, which is, I think, why you, you're making this alternative uh, suggestion or complementary suggestion. Can you explain what you think the problem is? There are two reasons. First reason is a very present one. I was wondering uh, how is it possible to combine promises, expectations. There's a, a rise of uh, promises, a rise of expectations. Uh, many leaders uh, coming from the European institutions or European countries uh, promising to the, to the Ukrainian people, to the Ukrainian leaders, you will be in the European family soon. And expectation from the Ukrainian side and also from uh, the other countries uh, Albania, North Macedonia, Georgia, Moldova, all those countries thinking that it's the right moment and these promises are there and the expectations also. And at the same time, I, I saw the contradiction uh, with the potential date of the true accession. It is impossible to have a process of accession, uh, completion of this uh, process before 10 years. So can you imagine to have uh, the uh, final formal accession in 2033, 2034? It's, uh, it's unconceivable uh, with today's promises and today's expectations. And the second reason is what happened uh, 30 years ago. I think we have to take lessons from history. Uh, 30 uh, years ago, uh, we had a lot of promises at the very beginning uh, immediately after the, the Berlin Wall fall. And uh, then 14 years or 16 years, even 23 years for Croatia before uh, joining the European Union. And I think um, many frustrations, deceptions, conflicts that we are having today in the last decade uh, within the European Union, between the East and uh, uh, the West and the, the, the founders of the European Union, are also because of uh, these kind of uh, 
history in in the in the first 20 years since 90 and i think it was like that because of the lack of a creative initiative early 90s i remember francois mitterrand launching an idea uh, like a confederation a european confederation at that time in reality the idea of mitterrand was also with russia at the very beginning. But the idea was, I think, the right one to say we have to build up immediately a European family, a place where we are all together, politically and also with some symbolism. This is why I think today we have to launch uh, something similar. And if you agree, I will be more than happy to explain how uh, this confederation can can work and can be the solution to this contradiction I uh, I just underlined at the beginning. I'd love to do that. Before we do that, can I just ask you a a question? Because some people say that, you know, now's not the time for for creativity Um, because, you know, we had lots of creative ways to involve Finland and uh, Sweden in NATO over the years. They're more bound in than many actual member states to the day-to-day operations of, of NATO. But they say, faced with an existential threat, we don't want <laughs> creativity, we want Article 5. Um, and obviously, you know, Zelensky has said the same about NATO, that's not possible. So he's then shifted his attention to to the European Union with its Article 42.7, which is not Article 5, but it still um, affords some kind of um, uh, protection. And in, in a way, the history of the last couple of decades have been of, of European politicians, leaders, including some some of your very distinguished colleagues like Romano, like Romano Prodi, coming up with creative ways of, of offering solidarity to our neighbours without membership, because you can do it more quickly. The, the idea of the European neighbourhood policy was that they get access to everything but the institutions. And I think it was a it was a, a, a very bold idea of creating a ring of friends around the European Union uh, at the time because member states didn't seem to want to enlarge the European Union. But do you think Ukraine's going to be satisfied with, with creativity now? Or do you think it just wants um, it wants the clarity of being part of the club and, and, and the, the protection that comes from, from, from that? I, I think the only way to give them uh, an institutional answer immediately is with something similar uh, with the European Confederation. Otherwise, the answers will be no. And uh, I think it is not good to say no today. But there's no way to say yes. Uh, It is impossible to say yes today to the accession, to the immediate accession to NATO. Uh, And it is impossible to say no to an immediate accession to uh, the European Union. They can only be candidates. They can only have the status of candidates. But frankly speaking, the status of candidates uh, is not uh, a status that changes your life. We had a lot of candidates in the past. Even Turkey uh, was candidate for a long period. Uh, And uh, this is why I think... Uh, this creativity uh, is needed today because creating the European Confederation is a way to welcome them in the European family. Uh, And uh, we create a European family. Uh, My idea is to have the 27 plus uh, the nine candidates, if they wish, potential candidates, if they wish to be 
uh, on board. Of course, I know very well there's the problem of Serbia and Kosovo still there. Uh, these two are two uh, out of nine. Uh, but is the way to have an immediate way to welcoming them in a European family. Uh, my idea of European Confederation means that we have to create uh, with a treaty, but a treaty that can be ratified very uh, quickly, uh, a place where uh, the 36 countries can share political uh, um, projects, uh, can share political positions uh, within uh, the global uh, uh, institutions, can have also uh, a discussion on how uh, to share uh, the single market and single market access and how to build up also build up also projects in some of the areas like for instance uh, R&D uh, Erasmus uh, and all these kind of uh, aspects that are so important for European identity uh, and also, I think uh, this kind of uh, uh, framework is the place where discussing some security issues. Uh, I think we can have the idea to extend, of course, not immediately, but to imagine to ex have an extension of the Article 42.7 uh, to this kind of framework one day. Talk a bit more about how this could work in practice. So would you, Is it, I mean, is this basically like the G7, a totally informal idea, or is it something that you'd have to join and where there'd be rules for becoming a member or not and a secretariat and a sort of legal basis and institutions and summits and, and other kinds of things? What kind of thing is the European Confederation? Uh, I, I think at the beginning... Because my idea to start is to start immediately, and uh, the, the the strength of this proposal is to uh, be uh, is to be possible to to have it on uh, on march uh, working immediately is to have it as a G7. So to have it, uh, for instance, in the next meeting in June of the European Council, you can plan to have the second day of the meeting, the first. Founding, founding uh, meeting of the European Confederation, having them there as political uh, meeting. But then I think a treaty is needed, a treaty with signature of the 36 countries and ratifications. Uh, this treaty can create the European Confederation having, I think, uh, and this is the best way to work, the European institutions working in a subsidiary way uh, as pillar of this European Confederation, having also the main meetings of the European Confederation organized around the meetings of the European Council. I think in terms of symbolism, uh, this idea is very strong today. Uh, the idea to uh, welcome the leaders of these countries, uh, the leader of Ukraine and Albania and North Macedonia, having one entire day be sharing with the other 27 leaders and the leaders of the European institutions the stage of Brussels uh, European Council. And being there with all the flags, with all the symbolism, of the European uh, meetings is something that shows that these countries are really 
uh, are, they are wel welcomed uh, in the in the uh, European family. So uh, we can start immediately, and then we can uh, immediately organize a treaty. Of course, a light uh, treaty that can be uh, working. So we'll talk a bit in more depth about the different areas that you think it should go in. But you mentioned the idea of, of um, security and Article 42, which is the, the self-defense, uh, the mutual defense clause in the, the EU, uh, in the Treaty on European Union. It, you know, in some ways, that's much less visible than Article 5 of NATO, but it's a more binding legal commitment to one another. Do you really think it's, it's plausible to have that in it and if we were willing to make those sorts of commitments to to ukraine um why didn't we make them earlier and and why, why are we not helping ukraine fight this war of course uh, the the idea to apply to the european confederation the article 42.7 can be done only can be realized only at the end of uh, the present war we can't uh, do so uh, immediately uh, this is why I say it can be the end of a process. But at the very beginning, what I think it is that this European Confederation can share uh, some important uh, policies and decisions and talks among the leaders. And also, uh, I think we can put uh, in the box of this uh, uh, European Confederation the work on... Uh, you know, the strength of the European Union today is to be a superpower of values. So what is linked to rule of law, democracy, and other aspects, freedom, freedom of press, and other aspects related to all these topics, that has, in my view, also the way to say to all these people, uh, look, uh, we are welcoming you in what is the most important, the core of our uh, community. And the core of our community uh, are values. And uh, the way also to be together in that, it can be, I think, uh, something really important for all of us. So um, just to be clear as well, um, the way that you're thinking about this is essentially a waiting room for, for candidates rather than a pan-European institution that can involve countries like Norway or Switzerland and the UK that are, you know, integrated in some institutions, but not in all of them and are not currently planning to become members of the, of the European Union? Uh, I have to say, frankly speaking, that um, I, I, I make a, um, I would say, a point, a different point for the UK because of Brexit. I think uh, after Brexit, it's very difficult to imagine immediately something where uh, the UK can be involved uh, with the European Union for many reasons that you know better than I do. Uh, but at the same time, I think this kind of European Confederation can be a place that is not only a waiting room, but then can be a pan-European place where uh, countries like uh, Switzerland or Norway I say even Turkey, not today, but tomorrow, can be there and can be there with all of us to try to enlarge the responsibility of the European Union at a global level. Uh, this is why I think in the European Confederation we have to think about uh, the competences, the policies, the 
topics, but uh, for instance, all, everything is, is related to positions that uh, we, the European countries uh, and the pan-European countries, we have to take at world level, for instance, uh, within WTO or uh, IMF or uh, world institutions, uh, I think it, it could be the, the right place to discuss it or even some discussions at, at the UN level. And in the, your article, you talk about how if you do this, you could then have seven different unions instead of one European Union. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? My point is related to the fact that uh, this kind of pan-European uh, approach and the creation of a European confederation must be not the obstacle to have further integration at 27. But in parallel, uh, we have to uh, continue and to... Uh, have further integration of 27. And when I say further integration at 27, I think, I think at 27, uh, these seven points that I mentioned in, the, in my article uh, are related to what we can do at 27, taking the momentum. And I, and I mean uh, uh, today uh, more integration with the social pillar of the European Union, more integration on... Uh, uh, creating the Europe of defense, creating the Europe of uh, healthcare, like uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen announced, for instance, two years ago, uh, and uh, today uh, is one of the most important subjects also in the uh, expectations uh, from the people and uh, the public opinion. So uh, my idea is that uh, the, the creation of a European confederation um, is the way to enlarge, but uh, I think we have to create something more uh, integrated among the 27. It's, it's always the same discussion that we had since 30 years about uh, widening and deepening. But if we go back to the early, to the time of Maastricht, people like Timothy Gartanash accused us of fiddling while Europe burned. You know, they made the, the he made the kind of Nero comparison because there was a war in Europe and our big focus was on building the foundations of, of, of the Euro and of the, the kind of three pillars of, of, um, of, of the European Union. Um, and as you said, we let some countries that were in the heart of that war wait over two decades before they actually got into the European Union. Do you think there's a danger of us making the same mistake again now? Uh, you know, I think the, the mistakes that we uh, made in the, in the late 90s are enormous. I think that, that the main mistake was to uh, uh, not to create a conditionality uh, between uh, some uh, widening, some institutional reforms for a world working of the European Union and the enlargement. The most important one is the, uh, is the elimination total withdrawal of the uh, veto power in some areas. Uh, and So your critique is the opposite of Timothy's, because you're basically saying the big mistake we made was not to deepen enough. We should have deepened absolutely, more before we absolutely. widened. Absolutely. And I think uh, if you take, for instance, the veto right that uh, I, I make an example that in my view is very important for the present war. Uh, in uh, August 2020, with, when, when the crisis in Belarus uh, came, uh, we at the European uh, Union level, we started discussing 
sanctions. Then we approved sanctions, but we didn't uh, complete this approval because of uh, one veto, and the veto was made by um, by, by Cyprus. Uh, Cyprus blocked uh, this uh, sanctions process against Belarus, and that was um, for for many weeks. Uh, the sanctions against Belarus weren't applied and weren't decided uh, because of the veto of Cyprus. Can you imagine how serious uh, was perceived uh, the the, the uh, European approach by Putin at that time? I think it was one of the reasons, yeah. uh, one of the, I don't want to say it is all because of that, but one of the reasons why Putin started thinking that uh, he could attack Ukraine, thinking that the um, response of the European Union would be uh, uh, a divisive response, a divided response, uh, without uh, uh, very, very uh, crucial uh, strength and, and so on. So my point is that we need to deepen. We need can I ask you another question about, about um, enlargement as a concept? Some people have argued that if you look at the countries that you're talking about, particularly Ukraine, but also Moldova, Georgia, um, the way that we've always thought about our neighbours is basically about trying to turn them into member states of the European Union, which is why we have this sort of complicated accession process and an enormously painstaking and uh, professional uh way of, of achieving regulatory alignment between other countries and, and the acquis communautaire, the 80,000 pages or more now of, of laws that we have um, uh, introduced uh, uh, as the, the rule book of the European club. But some people say that actually the big challenge for, for Ukraine, uh, to, for Moldova, for Georgia, is to exist as a state rather than a member state. And in fact, what they need is less to liberalise their economies and to to open themselves up to the gales of, of competition from from European countries that could wipe out sectors of their economy and drive down um, uh, standards in different areas. Um, what they need is more about you know building up their resilience and their ability to withstand the extraordinary pressure that they're getting from from Russia. Um, which is military, which is cyber, which is political, which is about infiltration of their media environments, infiltration of their intelligence services. Uh, it's a sort of all society um, set of pressures on, on them. And in the face of those sorts of things, regulatory convergence is not necessarily going to help them, uh, you know, except in the very long term, if they manage to survive as states. And that actually, in some ways, you could be weakening the sovereignty of these countries by going for regulatory alignment rather than strengthening it. I know as an Italian, you, you, there's, there's been a lot of debates about Italian sovereignty and the way to the extent to which your country's become more equal or fair or able to, to set its own future as a result of being in the euro. But at least you had you know, a very different starting point from, from these incredibly fragile countries like Moldova, which is the, the poorest country in Europe. But I, I think you, your, your point is, is, a, is a very important one because it is related to the fact that uh, there are many differences. If I mean Ukraine or if I mean Serbia, 
you can't have a comparison with Moldova, uh, it's it's or with Kosovo, Montenegro. It's a, it's a big difference. Uh, this is why I think uh, the, uh, the crucial importance of this proposal is to create um, a space where there we can have a multilateral coexistence of these countries. Uh, that was not the case in the 90s. In the 90s, you didn't have a multilateral uh, way to uh, organize the coexistence of these countries with the rest of the European countries. In the 90s, I think the big mistake was to have a to choose immediately after the, the Berlin Wall fall in the in the first two three years around Maastricht. The decision was to create a bilateral track a bilateral link between Brussels and the single candidate country. I think it was a big mistake. This is why I liked very much the, the proposal of Romano Prodi about the, the uh, kings of France, uh, the, the ring of France, sorry. That was a really good idea. Yeah. But in a way, the Prodi proposal, because I, I agree, and then that was kind of further refined because people said that was too much one-size-fits-all. So you then have the Mediterranean Union launched by Sarkozy with limited success, I think, on the one hand, and the Eastern Partnership Summit and um, framework, which was pushed by Carl Bilton and Radek Sikorsky initially, but is now part of the, the sort of infrastructure of, of Europe. But even that's quite complicated because, you know, Belarus is part of the Eastern Partnership um, not necessarily a candidate for the for inclusion in the European Confederation as you're defining it at the moment. You know, why do you think that's been such a sort of disaster in terms of making countries feel they're being given access to something that's worthwhile? Because it certainly hasn't removed their desire for for EU membership. Um, it has, I think, fed some of the fatigue and, and irritation um, about Europe in a lot of these countries that have been part of these different institutions. What's your analysis for why both the original Prodi vision, but also the the, um, the succession uh, institutions haven't really worked? And then also um, how the confederation will be different <laughs> if it's going to be more successful. Uh, um, I start by saying that I liked very much uh, Romano Prodi's idea. I think Romano Prodi's idea of the Ring of Friends was the right one. Uh, we had a lack of engagement by national leaders, at, by uh, countries, uh, because it was the period in which enlargement was not so popular in our countries. We started in, in this period, we were in, in 2003, 2004, we started with the fatigue, with the enlargement fatigue. And this enlargement fatigue was both in the candidate countries and in the funders, and this fatigue is one of the reasons why, for instance, uh, between uh, Poland and Hungary on the one hand and the rest of the uh, European countries and the, the rest of the, the funders, we started with a, a strong conflict, a deep conflict that we are still having. Uh, so my point is that European Confederation can work because of the commitment of national leaders. This is the difference. If national leaders understand that this idea can be the way to welcome Ukraine, and I mean Ukraine because it's the, it's the elephant in the room today, is the crucial point. 
if uh, the national leaders understand that is the way to welcome Ukraine within the European family immediately, immediately, uh, with the possibility then to leave in a normal procedure the accession of Ukraine and the other countries to the European Union, then that can work. And that can be the right idea to help leaders and the European Union to launch a project for the future. That can be the way also to adapt this project for the future to the present needs. And the present needs are needs with the idea that to the Ukrainian people, to the Ukrainian leaders, we have to give them something very, very concrete. We can't limit ourselves uh, to the to, to give them the idea that they are candidate countries uh, because it is not enough. This is my point. And have you had um, indications of support either from the Ukrainians or from any member states or the EU institutions since you launched this idea? I had some talks, um, some talks with also some Ukrainian uh, friends. And uh, the idea is that if the, if the idea is well presented and with the right narrative, that can be the solution of the uh, present crisis. My point, I say that in conclusion, is that if we don't do something like the European Confederation, I can tell you in six months' time, Ukraine will say we want to join the US and not the European Union. That can be the consequence of a lack of leadership by the European Union. Okay, well, that's a, it's a whole new big topic that you've launched there. But we, we have uh, no more time for this discussion now. But it's been great talking to you, Enrico. Um, there's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf section. Um, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I, I had a very good time in reading uh, Marco Buti. Marco Buti is an expert on uh, monetary union. Uh, and this book, The Man Inside, A European Journey, through two crises, Bocconi University Press, very interesting and very interesting to avoid to have a third crisis because my key point is that we risk a third crisis and we have to avoid it. Great. Thank you very much. We will put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do subscribe to it on whatever platform you're using to listen to us on. And while you're there, feel free to give us a positive review and a five-star rating as it will help to bring other people to the podcast. But for now, from Enrico Letta and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. Thank you very much, Enrico. That was fantastic. Great, and thank you so much. I'm very happy.